Thank you, Trey and Lizzie and Tony. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. We're going to continue our study through this wonderful book of very real-life wisdom. Proverbs chapter 10. We're going to jump into a topic today that we strive to teach our children from the earliest of ages. Something that we expect of other people towards us, but something that we often struggle with, even struggle more with as we age. That's forgiveness. The topic of forgiveness in the related category of reconciliation. Our relationships in this world are often marred. They're broken. They're full of strife and rivalry, bitterness, hostility, frustration, irritation, all manner of discord and disunity. And what's worse, churches and Christians are not immune from such disharmony. Rather than enjoying a unity that's grounded in our shared acceptance in the household of God and our mutual possession of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we instead fight and bicker and gossip. We bury it inside. We stew on it. We let it boil in our hearts. And as we'll see today from Proverbs and many other places in Scripture, that being unforgiving... Being unwilling to consider forgiveness is unbecoming of a child of God. It often shows that we truly don't understand the forgiveness that we've received from God Himself. So let's begin by looking at a single verse in Proverbs 10, from which we'll launch into several places in Scripture. Proverbs 10, verse 12 will be our central theme for today, and really just the latter half of the verse. Proverbs 10 verse 12, says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Holy Father, we ask that you would do a supernatural work and make us a loving and forgiving people. We ask that we would be quick to forgive, that we would be eager that we would be, by the power of your Holy Spirit, supernaturally enabled to cover offenses. And do this not for our glory, but because this is what you have done for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I'd like to look at what covering all offenses means in Proverbs. What does it mean? How do we figure that out? Well, we look at the larger testimony of scripture to figure out what that means and I'll begin by looking at the opposite revenge what does the Bible what does Proverbs say about revenge well Solomon teaches us in chapter 20 verse 22 do not say I will repay evil rather wait for the Lord and he will deliver me deliver you do not repay evil but rather wait on the Lord Or to look in the New Testament, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 12. Paul has built this huge theology throughout the first nine, ten chapters of Romans. And upon that theology, he then gets practical. 
chapter 12, 13, 14, 15. Romans 12, starting in verse 17, sounds very similar to what we read in Proverbs. Do not repay evil, rather wait for the Lord. Paul says in Romans 12, 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, which is a reference to Proverbs again, 25 Verse 21, speaking of a burning sense of shame, Paul concludes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In short, the testimony of Scripture is unequivocal. It is very clear. Revenge is not for us to take. As far as we can, we should seek to live peaceably with everyone, never seeking to get even, never seeking to exact our own vengeance. Rather, we should trust the Lord to repay. And that that should make sense to us. If it's a Christian that has sinned against us, then we can return evil with good because we know that Christ has died on the cross for that sin. If God has forgiven them, how could I not do so? Cosmic justice, God's justice has been satisfied through the atoning death of Christ on the cross for that transgressor's sin against you. Further, that's exactly how we would want to be treated we would want someone to return us good for evil that's applying the golden rule to this situation we're not seeking an eye for an eye we're not looking for retaliation but to trust in the lord rather than our own often self-centered sense of vengeance and justice but if the offender is not a believer and you've been slighted by somebody that rejects God entirely, then we can still forego revenge and wait on the Lord. Because we know that even if that person never sees justice in this life, we know that God will ensure judgment and justice in the next. The offending party against us either has had their sin atoned for on the cross, or they will spend an eternity in hell suffering for, among other things, that sin against you. Either way, we can trust the Lord and not seek to get our own vengeance. Do not seek revenge, the Bible clearly teaches us. But the Bible also makes clear that the absence of active revenge is not enough. The absence of vengeance seeking is not enough. Christians are called to actually take a step further and forgive. That's the second point today. Forgiveness. Which leads us back to our original text in Proverbs 10. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or we can look at Proverbs 17, verse 9, which says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Love covers an offense. Well, what does that mean, and how does that relate to the rest of Scripture's teaching about forgiveness? Well, we can start by saying what forgiveness does not mean. What forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness doesn't merely mean ignoring the sin. Just kind of plugging your ears and acting as if it didn't happen. It's not sweeping it under the rug. Further, 
forgiveness does not mean simply to forbear something. Forbearance is a word we don't often use these days, but it simply means to put up with something. Right? To forbear an offense that someone has done to you would be to bite your lip, to muster up some willpower and muscle through it. It's similar in practical experience to some aspects of genuine forgiveness, but it is not the same thing. Positively, I'll define biblical forgiveness for us with three parts this morning, each of which is important. Forgiveness is the determination to reckon with the wrongdoing, to relinquish condemnation, and to desire the good for the transgressor. I'll say it again. Forgiveness is, number one, the determination to reckon with the wrongdoing, to relinquish condemnation, and to desire the good of the transgressor. It's not an original definition to me. I learned it from a Christian professor who researches the physiological effects of forgiveness and unforgiveness within people. But it's a good working definition, and it's similar to many others that you can read in the biblical literature. So let's look at each of those components. First, forgiveness is the determination to reckon with the wrongdoing. To reckon with it. You might say it's even a promise. You're not going to sweep it under the rug. You're not going to act as if it didn't happen. You're not going to minimize the sin. Nor are you going to exaggerate the sin. And this can be hard because that's what we want to do. One of those two things. Either often out of a fear of any kind of conflict, we kind of say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. They, you know, I just... It was, it's, probably, it's a bad day or whatever. You minimize the sin. Or you're tempted, often because of pride, to exaggerate the sin. How dare they do that to me? Don't they know who I am? How could they possibly do that? Rather, the first step is to reasonably, soberly, biblically, responsibly reckon with the sin and the impact of it. Second, Forgiveness is the determination to relinquish condemnation. To relinquish condemnation. That means when we decide to forgive, we, we're repenting of any sinful anger in ourselves and we're seeking to release bitter feelings, resentment, hostility towards the offender. We promise to relinquish resentment and any future retaliation. As one pastor writes, forgiving means you promise to let go of the personal aspect of the offense. And you refuse to obsess over it. Which is often such a temptation for us. We just replay the episode over and over and over. And each time we boil up some more resentment. And bitterness within us. Now please take note. Resent, re relinquishing condemnation. Doesn't mean you're releasing them. From the consequences of their action. Right? Depending on the offense. The offender might have earned. Punitive consequences. Legal consequences. Or even church discipline. Forgiving the offender means we release personal feelings of liability and condemnation, but that does not mean that the offender shouldn't necessarily bear the consequences of their action. My child may have 
thrown a baseball through a window in my house, and I might say to them, I, of course, forgive you. And also, you will buy me a new window. Just because I forgive them doesn't mean I release them from the consequences of their sin. So forgiveness entails reckoning with the wrongdoing and determining to relinquish condemnation. But it also, third, is the determination to desire the good of the transgressor. It's the determination or the promise to desire the good of the transgressor. And this is important. And it's no less true even when the relationship cannot be restored to what it was previously. Here is where Christian virtues of empathy come in. Where the golden rule rubber meets the road. How do you want to be treated? We treat the offender the way that we would want to be treated, which means we would want our good, and so we should likewise seek their good rather than their harm. We replace evil thoughts of revenge with positive prayers for their flourishing. Rather than plotting their demise, we pray for their progress as a child of God. Whatever accountability they need, we seek to support that and bless them in their endeavors to walk in repentance. So to forgive means to desire the good of the transgressor. Now, a crucial question that often comes up when discussing forgiveness is its relationship to reconciliation. Forgiveness does not automatically mean reconciling the relationship to what it was before. But also, neither is forgiveness contingent upon reconciling the relationship. It's an important distinction. To say it another way, just because you've forgiven someone doesn't mean that reconciliation always happens. We hope it does. It's glorious when it does, and it can really demonstrate the power of the gospel when it does. But reconciliation doesn't always happen just because there is genuine forgiveness. I'll talk more about that later. What's important for us to think about now is that our decision to forgive isn't contingent upon the present reconciliation of the relationship. We are called to forgive even if there's no reconciliation. Forgiveness is a promise that we are making and that Jesus says we must make regardless of what the offending party does. Let me give you some examples. Consider the story of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was a young, younger brother. He was hated by his older brothers. They were jealous of him. They spoke harshly to him. They beat him up. They threw him in a pit. They planned to kill him. Instead, they decided to make a little money off of him, so they sold him into slavery. If anybody had a reason to hold a grudge and bitterness towards his brothers, it would be Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt. We're told he's blessed with favor from God. He climbs up to be the second in command in Egypt. And as the text tells us, I think the text subtly tells us that Joseph had forgiven even before reconciliation had happened. He didn't do this by acting as if the pain didn't happen, right? He didn't sweep it under the rug. He trusted God through it. Joseph's faithfulness to forgive is shown in the praise he gives to God and how he names his sons. 
The firstborn son is named Manasseh, which is derived from the Hebrew for forget. He says in Genesis 41, 51, For God has made me forget all of my hardship, the hardship of my father's house. He didn't sweep it under the rug. But through God's grace, he was able to move past it. And the second son he had was Ephraim, which he says, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He didn't literally forget his pain. Even after naming Manasseh, the affliction is still called up in Ephraim's name. We neither see Joseph ignore, excuse, minimize, tolerate, condone, or anything else, the actions of his brother. But what we do see is he's reckoning with the sin and he's not harboring bitterness. Another example, much more famous example of forgiveness without yet reconciliation is found in Jesus. Luke 24, 34, he cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's obviously aware of the sin against him, and yet he's actively seeking the good of the transgressors. Father, show them mercy. People killing him. He's praying that they would receive mercy. Or remember Stephen in Acts 7, the first Christian martyr. He's brought out to be stoned for his faith. He gives a wonderful sermon. And the passage concludes with this. Luke says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Could you imagine? People throwing rocks at your head, trying to kill you, and you praying to God, Father, forgive me. Show them mercy. Don't hold this sin against them. Rather than harboring bitterness, rather than calling out divine judgment right there, Lord, they're unjustly stoning me. Strike them dead with lightning right now. And that's what my flesh would want to do. That's what Zeus would have done. But that's not what Yahweh did. It's not what Jesus did. This type of forgiveness isn't merely the charitable thing to do, and neither is it just for the saintly or the super pious. It's for every Christian. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus doesn't mince words. If you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. Jesus is perfectly clear. Unwillingness to forgive is evidence of a heart that has not grasped the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. Think about the parable that Jordan read for us earlier, the parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant was forgiven by the king of a debt so large it would take lifetimes to repay. And yet that servant was unwilling to forgive another man of a debt just a tiny fraction of his own. The debt of the second servant was less than one part in a hundred thousand compared to the first servant that was forgiven by the king. And yet he was unwilling 
to forgive and let it go. When we fail to forgive others their sins against us, it shows us that we have not really grappled with the magnitude of what God has done on the cross. We don't see our sin as a heinous affront against an infinitely righteous God. We have violated His holy law and rejected His merciful grace. We've chosen our fleshly desires for vengeance. And we've marred His very image with which we have been created. And we willfully opted for a high-handed rebellion against our King rather than loving submission. We too often play the part of the unforgiving servant. We're unwilling to forgive others their slights against us. How could they possibly do that to me? We're unwilling to let go of the bitterness. We're unwilling to lay down our sense of vengeance and justice because we often have an overinflated view of ourselves and a sub-biblical view of our own sin. How dare they? How could they possibly do that to such an innocent and important person as myself? We may not actively think those thoughts, but that's how we're acting. We do that while minimizing the egregious magnitude of our own sin against God. Such hypocrisy, such a double standard, such an unforgiving spirit leaves us rightly condemned by God and worthy of being thrown in jail like the parable ends. But our jail isn't short term and our sentence cannot be commuted. The, the jail that we had earned is an eternal place of divine judgment. We earned hell. That's where the unforgiving will spend their eternity. But that's not all that God says about forgiveness in the Bible. In spite of the fact that we're too quick to condemn others, that we're too slow to forgive, in spite of the fact that we often play the part of the unforgiving servant, God in His kindness has chosen to forgive. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God did not crush them with justice, though He would have been just in doing it. Rather, He clothed them in His mercy. Despite Israel's repeated rebellion against God, He instead declares that He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God promises in Isaiah 43, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. It's not as if God forgets. He's omniscient. He can't forget, but He's choosing to not remember and count against you your sin. In fact, one of the most central promises of the coming new covenant would be God's promise to not remember our sins. Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the coming new covenant. The covenant that Jeremiah saw from afar, but the covenant that has been fulfilled in history by the life and death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus willingly came to earth and become a man in order to redeem an unforgiving people. His own were unwilling to reconcile with him. In fact, the Bible speaks of our natural relationship with him as enmity. That means war. We were at war with God. Enemies. And yet he came and lived and died so that our forgiveness might be earned. He came knowing what the plan was. 
to become a victim of injustice so that we might be forgiven of our unforgiveness. He tasted the cup of bitterness so that we might be purged of our own bitterness. His life earned nothing but peace, but yet he willingly took on the place, the punishment that we vengeful souls had earned. Think of his sacrifice in our place and how low he came down for us and how high we have been raised for him. Consider how much love it would take to overcome such a gap in injustice. And how much affection he must have for you to undertake such a miserable mission. Cherish that Christ. Love him. Come back to him if you've strayed and be forgiven again. And if you're struggling to forgive someone else, think long and hard of Christ's sacrifice of forgiveness and how much love he must have for you. You who were his former vengeful enemy now made his sweet companion. And see how your bitter feelings can in time be changed into loving thoughts towards your once enemies. And if you've never come to Christ for forgiveness, that is by repenting of sins and believing in this Christ of Scripture, then hear my words this morning and know that you can taste of genuine forgiveness. Conscience cleansing, soul liberating forgiveness. Don't be like the unforgiving servant who will be thrown into the eternal prison of hell because you would not let go of your grudges. You would not let go of your pride and your bitterness and your hatred and your envy. Come to Jesus and have your cold heart warmed by His grace and by His love. That's the offer for you and do not reject it. Do not remain outside of His kingdom. We are called to forgive because Christ, our King, has first forgiven us, His servants, of an incalculable debt. Lastly, we've covered Revenge and forgiveness. Now let's move on to the next step. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation is when both parties have agreed that the relationship can be restored even though it was previously broken by an offense. The Bible teaches us in several places we should strive for this whenever we can. We read earlier, Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, live at peace with all. Jesus says in Mark 9 that we should have salt in ourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt language there is a preservative, a purifier. We should seek to have a preserving and purifying element that restores and sustains our relationship. And that makes sense for us as we have been beneficiaries of a great act of reconciliation. So we too can turn around and have reconciliation in our relationships with others. We were at war with God. We were hated enemies of God. We were traitors. But Christ on the cross has made a way for us to be reconciled, reunited with God. Romans 5 speaks of this reconciliation. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have 
reconciliation. Right? We were apart, irreconcilable, but because of Jesus, we can be brought back together to God. God has made a way for us to have peace because of Christ's atoning work. And because He has done that for us, we can then treat others in the same way. He's filled us with His Holy Spirit, and by the work of that Holy Spirit, we can grow in our love and our compassion for those that had previously sinned against us. We can begin to fulfill what Paul exhorts in Colossians 3. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. God's people should ordinarily be living in a reconciled, loving, forgiving community. A community where we don't keep records of wrong, we don't hold grudges, we don't keep people at arm's length for something they did in the past. The gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit can and do overcome these great relational rifts that happen because of sin and can, in time, bring instead loving, warm fellowship that was previously marred by brokenness and hostility. In fact, that reconciliation is what proclaims the power of the gospel to a divided world. When the world sees unity between enemies like Jews and Gentiles, Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. That unity proclaims something powerful about the gospel. Former enemies made friends. When spouses can forgive and reconcile with unfaithful spouses. When slaves can forgive and reconcile with former masters. When victims can forgive and reconcile with transgressors. Then the power of the gospel is proclaimed in a mighty and awesome way. That's what we want to see. That's what Paul encourages in several places in Scripture. However, we must also recognize that the Bible does explain a few times when forgiveness does not necessarily lead to reconciliation. We do get a few hints about times that forgiveness may not lead to reconciliation. A little side note before I jump into some of those situations. Some of these require great wisdom and care. And I can't address every nuance here. And so if you're unsure about whether your situation should lead to reconciliation or not, please talk to your parents or your Sunday school teacher or your pastors. Often it takes an outside voice to help us discern what we should do in complex relational situations. But one example of when forgiveness doesn't necessarily lead to reconciliation is when the transgressor clearly does not repent. When the transgressor, the person that has sinned against you, is clearly unrepentant, then our relationship is not going to be reconciled to what it was before. It's going to be different. Many places in Scripture contain warnings about us Walking together with unrepentant sinners. Paul tells us, for example, that bad company corrupts good morals. 
Psalm 1 talks about warnings against walking in the way of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers. We need to be careful with whom we have relational closeness and intimacy with, especially if they are unrepentant. Doesn't mean we necessarily cut off, but it often means our relationship should be different. If you're in school and your classmate is bullying you and sinning against you, and they refuse to admit any fault, then your relationship with that person should look a little different. If someone is being clearly sinful and doesn't admit any fault, then the relationship should look different. Forgiveness is still required. Our necessity of forgiving is still a command of Scripture, but it doesn't mean that relational reconciliation will always follow. Second, a second example of when forgiveness doesn't necessarily lead to reconciliation is when the transgressor's repentance is proving disingenuous. When the transgressor's repentance is proving disingenuous. 2 Corinthians 7 teaches us that there are two kinds of repentance. Godly and worldly. Or we could say true, genuine, or false repentance. Godly sorrow and repentance will have a genuine confession of sin and a resolve to change to do better. They won't be perfect. None of us repents perfectly. We still sin in this life. But genuine repentance will contain admission of fault, a confession of sin, a hatred of that sin, and wanting to turn from it. That's what repentance means. Turning. Turning from the path of foolishness to the path of righteousness and wisdom. But worldly sorrow or false repentance is demonstrated when someone feels bad about what happened, promises to do better usually, but doesn't have any lasting follow-up, any lasting change. They, think, they say they're going to do better, but they quickly go back to the same old habits. And when someone is demonstrating a pattern of worldly sorrow, we can begin to conclude that their repentance is not genuine, and in such cases, reconciliation may not be possible. Your relationship may need to look a little different. If someone sins against you and promises to do better, but continues to sin in the same ways, it's probably best for your relationship to change, at least until that repentance begins to show genuine fruit. Then you can resume conversations of reconciliation. Third, and lastly, Scripture tells us as another example of when forgiveness doesn't necessarily lead to reconciliation, and that's when the transgressor's sin causes great harm. When the transgressor's sin causes great harm. The Bible makes clear that there are certain sins that are so hurtful, so impactful, so damaging to relational trust that reconciliation may not be possible. Such great harm is done and trust is shattered that the two parties just can't make the relationship work. One clear example is adultery. Adultery can have the devastating effect on marriage to where the marriage covenant just can't be restored to what it was. 
That's why Jesus says adultery is grounds for divorce in Matthew 19. We hope there can be reconciliation. But scripture nowhere requires spouses to reconcile within a marriage when one of the spouses has biblical grounds for divorce. The Bible says that we are required to forgive an offending party, but it does not require in every situation that we must trust them and reconcile with the offender as if no sin had ever happened. So by way of conclusion, let me say that I have covered a lot of different categories this morning, many of which require nuance and counsel and wise discernment. And if you need wisdom in how to deal with a troubling relationship, seek out what God's word says. Prayerfully consider how we're called to forgive, regardless of what the other party does. And consider how we're, try, we're called to try and live peaceably with all men. If you need wisdom and counsel, reach out to your brothers and sisters. And in all things, remember Christ and the great lengths to which he went in order to bring about the complete and full forgiveness we needed. Our hatred was overcome by Christ's willingness to overlook our offenses in love. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of forgiveness that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be moved, that we would be shaped by this love, that we would be marked by this love, that we would be willing to show the same love to others. Lord, I know there are some people in here who are struggling to forgive. I ask that you would comfort them with the grace of Christ, that you would show them clearly what Scripture says. Give them the strength they need so that they can begin to forgive others that have sinned against you. Father, in all things, we ask that you would make your name great. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to close this morning by singing, There is a fountain filled with blood. The blood being our only means of reconciliation with God and with each other. Trey. Right.